Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The act of walking towards danger is something most people cannot comprehend. But that's exactly what firefighters do throughout their entire lives, and there's almost a spirituality about it. They walk towards danger and suffering in order to serve. Firefighters learn to live in the moment in a fully immersed manner, staying grounded while facing danger, comforting others, and serving even in the face of danger is something that actually quite inspires me a lot. Hirsch Wilson is a 37-year veteran volunteer firefighter EMT with the Hondo Fire Department in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He is the author of a brand new book, Firefighter Zen, from New World Library. This book is full of memories, fantastic anecdotes, hilarious and heartbreaking stories that open the eyes to unforeseen tragedy, the temporary nature of life, the humor found within this intriguing profession, and the ways that small groups of people within communities band together to take care of responding to emergencies. Throughout the years of responding to tragedies, Hirsch has learned a lot about life and how to stay resilient, calm, optimistic, and grow as a person. I absolutely loved this book, and I think that you will too. There is also a great audiobook version of the book as well, which I listen to often on my runs while preparing for this conversation with Hirsch, and I recommend the audiobook as well if that format suits you. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Hirsch Wilson, author of Firefighter Zen, out now on New World Library. Hirsch Wilson, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am delighted to have you. I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit. Sure. My name is Hirsch Wilson. Um, I am uh, a volunteer firefighter and have been for 33 years. Um, I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, I'm married with two adult children, and my wife was also a volunteer firefighter. We moved to New Mexico in 1986. Uh, and jumped right into, you know, from we, we both grew up in theater, my wife and I, Lori and I, we both grew up in theater and dance. And then when we retired from that, we were looking around for work and ended up in New Mexico. Awesome. Well, the the dance career pre-firefighting was such a fantastic little nugget in your book that we're going to talk about today. I thought that was so cool. Um, you know, what what kind of styles of dance were you both into? We uh, were both uh, trained as ballet dancers, but we uh, and I danced with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet in Canada. Wow! And then in Switzerland and in the United States, and then Laurie and I both ended up doing a lot of musical theater. Wow! Which was a blast. Was a blast. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. That's so cool. Do you still dance? Uh, you know, recreationally at all? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Okay, you got. No. I I grew up as yes. a as a competitive swimmer, and like I oh, virtually okay. never swim now because all of that <laughs> is like it was so beaten into me that yes. I just have no interest in spending any more time of my you know finite existence doing that. You know what I mean? Totally, I understand. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we're here today to discuss your brand new book, Firefighter Zen. 
A Field Guide to Thriving in Tough Times, a very apt title, if I may say. Um, The book is out from New World Library, and I've been reading this fabulous book. I've been listening to the audio version as well. This book has like a lightness, darkness, humor, life lessons, and it's got a heck of a lot of awesome quotes and quips, and I'm just like absolutely delighted with it. Um, It's been really, uh, you know, taking up a lot of my time the last couple days, and it's just been such a pleasant thing to dive into. But before we dive into the book, there's something I want to know about, and this is something I'm genuinely curious about and have been for some time, and it's the idea of volunteer fire departments. Mm -hmm. My fire department, I live in a little village outside of Buffalo, and it's totally volunteer. And in my brain, I cannot understand why these folks aren't paid um, and I want to know all about fire departments, why so many are comprised completely of volunteers, why they aren't paid, and the history behind all of this uh, nationwide way that we fight fires, um, because it just seems like, why aren't these folks being paid? So I'm curious about your take on all that. Sure. So there are about 1.2 million firefighters in the United States. Uh, approximately 700,000 of those are volunteers. Um, the volunteer, the first volunteer fire department was started by Benjamin Franklin in the 1730s. Mm. Um, and I think the impetus then, and this impetus now, especially in medium sized towns and small towns is if we don't do it, no one's going to do it. Mm. Right. Um, they can't small towns, uh, typically, and it, and it used to be, and I'll get into that in a minute, but small towns can't, can't afford, uh, to fund, um, a career fire department. Mm. So, so it's always been volunteers. So volunteers have existed since the beginning of this country. Um, and the, in, in New York and in Boston, way back in the 18th century, 19th century, they were, there were volunteer fire companies. Uh, and they all staked out their territories, and they would uh, run to calls. And it wasn't until later on in the history of those cities that they decided this is ridiculous. We need to have career firefighters on staff all the time. Mm. But so, so the way you look at it is most major cities uh, and, and even medium-sized cities have career full-time fire departments and, uh, and EMS departments. But a lot of small towns and rural areas are, uh, have purely volunteer or what we call combined departments where there's a mix of career and volunteers. And that's pretty common all over the country. That's so interesting to me. So you have to have so much specialized training in order to do the work that you do, which you talk about in the book. Are all of your trainings like provided through any kind of like tax funding or are you like completely on the hook financially for being trained on all this, all these skills? Um, usually we have a tax base. So we get our funding two ways. We get a, a, um, a percentage of our tax from homeowners, from our funding from taxing homeowners. And then we do lots of fund drives. We do fund drives, two of them a year. Mm-hmm. And on the East Coast where you are, there is a lot of uh, bingo nights mm. and, and uh, all kinds of ways to help fund the department because it is very expensive. It costs about $40,000 to completely outfit one firefighter. Wow. Well, and then, I mean, I, I can't even imagine how much these like large trucks and supplies are. I mean, it's, it's, gotta, <coughs> it's gotta be a fortune. Yes, it's about $500,000 for a big engine. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so wild. Yeah. Okay, so while you were doing this like total 
volunteer side gig, what were you doing to put food on the table in your, you know, everyday life? That's a great question. Um, I, uh, my wife owns a store in Santa Fe, which is caters to pets. Oh, good. A lot, a lot of pet, uh, pet store stuff. And then I've been, um, up until March 11th this year, 2020, um, I was a consultant, so I traveled a lot. I worked with the large organizations on leadership development and culture, cultural development. Mm. But all that, of course, stopped uh, when the pandemic hit. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I'd love to know the story of how you got into this uh, very selfless side you know, lifestyle of volunteer fire department and firefighting um, that you do totally for free. How did you get into this this lifestyle in the first place? Sure. Well, it's my wife's fault. Oh, good. It's, it's Lori's fault. <laughs> we, we moved out to Santa Fe. She ended up working at a conference center, which is about an hour outside of Santa Fe. And we're, a, you know, we're a very rural state, uh, not a whole lot of infrastructure. But um, one night, a guest fell and broke her ankle. And at the time, at the conference center, there was nobody who even had first aid training. So they didn't know what to do. The woman was in pain. They ended up calling the local um, volunteer fire department out there, and they transported her to the hospital. Well, Lori was so upset that she said, this is never going to happen again on my watch. Mm. So she went to, she took an emergency medical technician class which is about six months long, uh, and it, um, it, you know, she, she ground through that, did all the work uh, three or four times, three, to, three or four nights a week, and at the end, the instructor said, you know, Lori, what you ought to do to keep your skills sharp, because there's a lot of skill-based work as an EMT, is you ought to join a fire department, join a volunteer fire department. Mm. So, so she thought about that, and then what Lori heard, however, wasn't that she should join the department, but that we should join the department. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so she came. She came home and told me we were joining a fire, a, a volunteer fire department. I had never heard of such a thing. Yeah. Right. Um, and I and when she talked about it, I just couldn't see myself as a da- as a former dancer and a business guy. Yeah. I couldn't. I could not see myself breaking down doors with an axe. Nor and I had a thing like all the men in my family about blood and gore. Mm. So I just did not see that as working. But <laughs> she, she convinced me to go to the first meeting. And at the first meeting, uh, we sat around uh, in the bay of the fire department. They pulled the trucks out and had tables. And uh, there were just this arrangement of people that were amazing. It was There were lawyers and artists, because it's Santa Fe, and writers, um, contract guys, um, and even one federal judge. Mm. Uh, and they were all on the, you know, this was the volunteer fire department. And they were passing around a picture of an accident, an unfortunate accident they had had the week before. Mm-hmm. And in it was the patient who unfortunately had died. Uh, and they were passing this picture around. And Lori looked at it and she was just intrigued after all her medical training. And then they passed it to me and it was uh, a, a picture of a guy with a broken neck. And I passed out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, just I got to go. Love you guys. Great work. I'm out of here. Oh, my God. So I started walking on. Then Lori grabbed me and said, maybe you can just learn how to run the trucks. Mm. And then you, and you don't have to do anything else. You know, so, what, um, a, uh, what a fantastically adventurous uh, partner you have in life. Yes, definitely. definitely. <laughs> That's but, awesome. Yeah. Um, is, does, she, does she do any writing as well about her experiences within firefighting like you? No, she doesn't. I mean, we've we've... 
discuss stories together, but she's not the writer. Awesome. She's, she's, she's more the action person. Nice, nice. I love it. Okay, so, um, you know, this book, Firefighter Zen, has the term Zen in the title. And, I, you know, I know that, you know, I'm probably one of many shows that you're doing, but this has been a show where I've largely talked about religious studies and different religious traditions around the world with everybody from Baha'is to Sikhs to Zen to, to Hindus, like everybody. And this book has Firefighter Zen in the title, and I was curious how you equate the two terms that make up the title, so Firefighter and Zen. And you start off Firefighter Zen by describing, like, you know, um, actually, that's a separate question, but uh, so how did this, uh, how do you, like, uh, equate these two terms that make up the title? Sure. So I think of Zen and firefighting as separate roads to the same conclusions and the same consequences um, and what I mean by that is one of the, 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 the two immediate lessons you learn as a firefighter are one, that life is short. Uh, and by that I mean because firefighters are exposed to death on a regular basis, um, it kind of busts the illusion that we're immortal, <laughs> mm. which a, a lot of us carry around, that we're immortal, that we're going to live forever, that uh, we have time. Um, and and one of my, my one of my partners, uh, Jürgen Voigtlander, who was German, he was a firefighter. He was the only anarchist, communist, socialist, atheist firefighter I ever knew. Yeah, I love that guy um, in the book. He's awesome. Right, right. But he said we were driving home one night from a call, and he just said, "You know why I do this? I do this to bring death into my life, because three generations ago, everybody was familiar with death, and everybody knew how to how to birth a child." And how to embalm their parents, right? Mm. And, and I wanted to bring death into my life, um, so that I could, I could frame my life better. And I think what you know the practice of Zen tells us is that all we have, all we really have, is now, mm. right? We have now, we have this, yeah. and everything else um, is a maybe. But what we have, all we can hold on to is this. And so firefighting really drives that home. The other, the other thing that firefighting teaches you is that there's tremendous suffering in the world. Every time a 911 call goes out, um, it's because someone is, in, in most of the calls, someone's in pain, someone's suffering. So we are, we are face-to-face on a daily basis with people who are in, are in pain. And uh, I think Buddha said, life is suffering. Mm-hmm. Life is suffering. So uh, uh, firefighting takes those two tenets and puts it puts it right in your face that our lives are short um that that there is suffering and the and the, the other thing that firefighting teaches is that we all have plans i mean i think the best analogy is if you go back to march this year we all had calendars right yeah we had, our, had our calendars planned for the year we knew what we were going to be doing the next month and as soon as the lockdowns came we just threw all the calendars away yep because it didn't make sense well that's how we firefighters understand the world is that you can have plans, uh, you can have your lifeline laid out, but the fact is that there's a glitch. And the glitch is that things happen, stuff happens all the time to every one of us uh, that just derail our plans and, uh, and make the present very vivid uh, and the future uncertain. And that's, um, you know, I think that's the way I choose to view life. Um, to be really in the moment, to really enjoy uh, what I have, and not worry too much 
uh, about what's going to happen in the future because it's it's um, it, it's so uncertain. It's a big maybe. Right, it's a big maybe. So right before right before we got on the phone, I was dancing with my granddaughter who's two, mm. and I thought this is the the best thing ever, right? Yeah. This is the best thing ever, and I think that holding on to that mindset is really important, especially now um, during the pandemic. Well, and you uh, you really messed me up when I was reading the book too because I'm a cyclist and I read the story about the father on the bicycle in your story oh, and I, I, yeah. I had to I had to put it down and walk away for a while because mm-hmm. that situation could have happened to me so many times throughout the past and, 20 years of yeah. riding, riding my bike thousands of yeah. kilometers like all over the country yeah it's, it's yeah, something it, you know yeah. it's it's it just highlights that certainty that things happen and plans are just you know uh they're so uncertain at best. Right. And I, I think the, it's important to have plans. Yeah. Right? But you have to realize that you can't be waited to the plan so much that if it doesn't, if, if it doesn't work out, you're devastated. Yeah. Right? You have to be, have that kind of resilience and that flexibility um, to, to get on no matter what. And I, and I, think, um, I think of our grandparents – and um, my grandparents were both born in 1900, so they had their lives planned out, and then they went through the First World War, the Great Depression. Uh, I mean, they went through Prohibition. My, my grandfather was a liquor salesman. Oh, wow. Um, and then um, Second World War and the flu epidemic in 1919, um, the, the Red Scare, the Communist Red Scare. I mean, they went through all of this, hmm. right? So, so they... But they survived, and they were great, and they were resilient, and they learned because I think we only learn this through experience, right? We only learn this through our plans not working out and realizing, oh, I get it. Life is not about having a plan mm-hmm. that works out. It's about having a plan but being resilient uh, enough to move in a different direction when when it's when it's needed. Mm. You know, something I also like about this book is you start off Firefighter Zen by describing the joyfulness of firefighting. I'm curious if you can just tell me about joy after being a firefighter for 30 plus years. You already mentioned the example of your granddaughter and dancing, but tell me about the the joy of firefighting itself. Right. So I think um, when people start as firefighters, they're very addicted to the adrenaline, Mm. right? The driving fast, the red lights and sirens, the big fires, right? Um, but after you've been in a department for a while, that fades. You don't get you don't get adrenalized that often anymore. So you have to find you have to dig deep to find something that motivates you. Um, and what what replaces that is uh, helping people, is being there when they're in their darkest time. And the idea we talk about. Um, is that you know we run towards catastrophe, we run towards tragedy, and in that moment of helping somebody, it, it, you you have this enormous sense of you're doing important work, and and you're doing fulfilling work, and it's 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 that kind of sense of meaning and fulfillment and helping others that to me uh, results in true joy, and I think I always think of the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is a great thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's to me in just in my mind how I define things. It's temporary. Uh, I think of um, of being happy as when you buy a new car, 
and you have that feeling, oh yeah, the new car smell. Mm. And then a couple weeks later, it's if you're like our family, it's full of um, the back seat's full of soccer socks and old French fries that are breeding. You know, and it's yeah. like you know, and and that that happiness goes away. Yeah, it's temporary. But joy is when when you are doing the work that you're meant to be doing, using the talents that you have in 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 search of helping people. So if you can put that together, that's how you find joy. You know, and that's so interesting too, because I've been a high school teacher for about fourteen years now, and you know, I think back on all the times in my classrooms where I've been completely exhausted, totally mm. jaded, and cynical. Mm. But then you get up the next day and you go back and you're like, oh boy, here we go again. And then you do it and then like you can have an absolutely terrible day followed by an absolutely amazing day. And then at the end of the year when you're seeing the the faces of the young people that you spent an entire year with day after day and you're talking to them about reflecting upon their past year of experience and you realize all the moments you laughed together – it yep. makes it all completely worth it. And then that instills that joy. So I know that a lot of teachers out there who listen to this show will resonate with that as well. There's something about these helping service professions that just no matter how exhausting they are, they still create those experiences that keep us coming back for more. Absolutely. I coach high school soccer. Um, I've, done, I've been a high school soccer coach for about uh, 20 years. Mm. And it's the same thing. It's like, Oh my God! Another practice. It's, yeah. it's horribly hot. I can't stand it. <laughs> We're going to lose again. Yeah. Um, but you know, after a while, for me, the wins and losses don't mean anything. But it's out there being with those kids and and helping them understand the world a little better. Yeah. And the joy we have of being together and laughing just transcends all the kind of competition stuff. Yeah, man, that's you're the perfect kind of coach. Then I remember my uh, my t-ball coach when I was five. He was a yeller, so I'm glad that you're the opposite kind of approach to your coaching career. And yeah. laughing is better than yelling. Any day. Yeah. yeah, yeah, heck yeah. You know, and another deeply fantastic section of this book is related to the humor of firefighting. And we were just like talking about this a second ago about laughter, you know. And so I love the section on humor in the book, in which you refer to firefighters as quote poets of the absurd. And then you say that they seek a middle way between seriousness and messiness of life. Like the man kicked by dead cow, broken ankle is a particularly hilarious story in this book. Yeah. I'm yeah. curious if you can tell me some stories about laughter within firefighting. Um, like when surrounded by so many disturbing things, you are still like finding laughter with your, uh, you know, in this camaraderie with your fellow firefighters. What's that environment well, like? Well, I think it's a couple of things. I think, uh, humor is the antidote to tragedy, mm. right? Um, and I think if if um, if we did not have a sense of humor, if we couldn't kind of step back and see the absurdity of things, we would go crazy, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what firefighters and our our sense of humor is, is often quite dark, and we mm. don't share it outside the departments. Um, but we see so many absurd things. Right. And it's not as if we're, we're naturally funny, but when you step back and look, the, it's just crazy out there. Mm. Right. Um, and I mean, I was I, can, I can't the number of times that, you know, I had a guy tell me that he uh, he was just a homeless guy who was drunk. And, we, and you know, we're, we got him in the ambulance. We're just kind of taking his vitals, make sure he's OK. And he said he was a Sandinista and he was going to murder us all. Woo! And and, you know, <laughs> you, you just say you can either go, oh, my God, or you can say, OK. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right. And it, it just every day, every day we're we're just kind of confronted with 
the absurdity of of life and and you know from from the man kicked by a dead cow to um, being punched in the face by a drunk woman you can either get really angry or realize why did you get so close to a drunk woman who was swinging punches <laughs> yeah yeah right and it's just always out there so what i've learned is um, to do the work be serious about the work but also be able to step back and see it is crazy out there and then also not take myself too seriously and if i can put all those three things together in a day it's a good day do you and your you know fellow firefighters past and present like get together around like a fire pit for beers like on a on the weekends regularly and like just be like man i can't believe that happened Absolutely. I mean, and we drive our spouses crazy because we end up telling the same stories. Yeah. Right. And so we're, we're getting to the point where instead of telling the stories, we're just going to number them. Right. And just say number four. And everybody laughs. Oh, right? man. Yeah. Right. Because because we just keep recursively going over the same things. And I think that is an, is important for a couple of reasons. It's enormously bonding. Um, and and you have to be close as a fire department. It is a brother and sisterhood because uh, you, you need to be close to trust each other and be open with each other. Uh, I think the other thing is it really keeps we, – we can kind of keep an eye on everybody, uh, you know, see the people who are lost and, and have had too much and know how to treat them. And then finally, I think it just, it just keeps us in touch with why we do the work. I love it. Um, you know, we're living in a time which we talked a little bit about earlier about the pandemic – and I find myself constantly absorbed in the thought of, are we all in this together or not? You know what I mean? I'm like, right. uh, you know, obsessing over this question, are we all in this together or not? And you write that firefighting shifted you from sort of like a me to a we centeredness. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes. I think um, what, what the fire department has taught me, because I was kind of a loner, mm -hmm. I, I kind of bought into the American myth of the of the cowboy in the West and individualism and sure. that's what's great in the Lone Ranger. And, you know, I've come to understand that that's just all nonsense. Mm. <laughs> I think it's just nonsense. If you look at everything we've done as a country, uh, that's been great uh, from the revolution to the writing of the constitution, uh, all the way up to the second world war to putting a man on the moon. We did that collectively. Mm -hmm. Those are, those are works of, People coming together to do something important, um, and I just, I'm just reading this book called "How the South Won the Civil War," and and uh, by this amazing author, she's I can't remember her name. She teaches at Boston College, but she talks about the Second World War being this being this amazing, astonishing time when the country just came together as one in order to do what had to be done, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then after 9/11, there was that sense that we are in this together, right? And it, was, it didn't last for long, but there was that, that feeling. And I don't think we're all, right now in the pandemic, we're all in this together. I think that my best analogy was we might be in the same sea, but a lot of us are in boats and some of us are hanging on to pieces of lumber, you know, right? Yeah. It's just we're not in the same and we're not being – and our leaders are not, are not doing the things they need to do to bring us together. So it is – not a good thing. I, and it, so, but anyways, the fire department teaches you that in order to get important work done, you have to come together. It's, you can't fight a fire 
one person can't fight a fire. 20 individuals cannot fight a fire effectively. They have to be together. They have to trust each other. They have to be bonded at a high level. And they have to work together in order to accomplish things we need to accomplish. Can you give me an example? So of, kind of, yeah, I'm curious about an example sure. of that, that 20 people. Like, how does that look? Like, if you're working together as 20 people, what does that look like? Sure. So, you know, so I've been a firefighter for 30 plus years. And after 10 years of, of doing stuff with the same people, we walk onto a fire scene. Um, we know what we're going to do. Uh, we, there's always an incident commander. But that incident commander just has to, says, just has to say, Hirsch, you've got ventilation. Um, Dan, uh, you take the roof. And we know what to do. And we just work seamlessly together. Um, and there's this feeling of, you know, we don't have to hold, there's not a whole lot of explanation needed, right? There is, I know Dan's competent. He's going to do what he needs to do. Dan trusts me to do what I need to do. And we just attack this together. Um, and we finish each other's sentences. Mm. We look out for, you know, we look out for each other. We have each other's backs. We see the same. We see the problem through the same set, uh, you know, same pair of glasses, if you will. Um, and it's just that kind of. Um, there's a, oh gosh, the, a Czech psychologist. And I'm sorry, I don't remember his name because it's impossible to pronounce. But he talks about a sense of flow, mm. of when of of when the egos are gone, right? The the and we're, we just flow into this. And work together as a team. Yeah, and I think that's the experience. Yeah, I know that flow state psychologist you're talking about. The, yes. the name is very long and difficult, but if anybody <laughs> if anybody Google searches flow state, it pops up immediately. It pops up. You do it yourself. Do the work. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> so you know, this is a, as I mentioned earlier, a show that's usually that I usually talk about religion, but I love having these out of the box conversations because you can always tie in like ideas about you know the biggest mysteries of the universe and the biggest questions of life that. Um, people strive to answer for for millennia and you know can't really answer because they're virtually unanswerable but you include a quote from the buddha that i really liked which which reads our greatest mistake is believing we have time and you know i'm curious if you can talk a little bit about like uh like living in the moments a little more possibly more so than people in other professions like how would you contrast firefighters of living in the moment to like some other professions that you've observed over the years how does that differ that momentary living i think of it this way and part of it goes with what our culture teaches right and 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 how our culture is designed our culture is designed and teaches us that everything's okay uh, that you're gonna live forever that the pursuit of money and status uh, and material things is how we find um, happiness, right? Mm -hmm. And in order, in order for that to happen, you have to believe that you're going to live forever. Um, all that turns out to be an illusion. Mm. Um, and I think, I think, um, although it's changing, I think most careers are are. And I don't even know if it's because of the careers. It's just because of the, the mindset. And, and I talk about in the book that it's, it's probably that illusion exists in our brain that we're going to live forever. Because if we understood the truth, right, you would, we would all go insane. Mm. Um, if, we under, if we kind of reflected on the fact that before we were, we were born, there was an infinity of time. And after we've gone, 
there's an infinity of time. And we are simply this small speck right now. That's all there is, right? That's all there is. Yeah. But if everybody thought that, I think I think the prevailing power structure would say, well, nothing would get done, <laughs> mm. right? Um, so I, to me, and I think that's true. It's like, it's like um, I once came in after a call, and and it was I was it was a bad call, and I was kind of teary eyed, and I just told Lori and my kids, I love you so much, and she said, well, you know, it's still your turn to take the recycling down to the bottom. Right? <laughs> yeah, right, because. The the fact is you have to live with you have to live with two things that life is really short. I only have this moment and it's not guaranteed. And I have to get things done. I have to support my family. I have to do work that's important. So it's it's kind of holding those two thoughts at the same time. That's really the balance that we're trying to strike. There's a line in the book which is so unbelievably precise for this moment in time that we're living in during COVID-19. In the book you write, on the microscopic level, we are in an evolutionary battle um, for our lives against microbes and disease chaos. And certainly this this line, which you, I would assume you wrote this pre-COVID, but this must yeah. have taken on a new meaning for you. Um, I'm curious, you know, about the, you know, the possibly few hundred thousand dead Americans, um, if this has altered your notion of we have time or if this has like reinforced your argument about this uncertainty that you write about in the book. Oh, I think it's definitely reinforced, uh, my belief about the uncertainty. Um, and I think if you ask any firefighter, it's, it's, um, they're, they're, um, not surprised or shocked that this happened mm -hmm. because they know that's the way of the universe, right? Stuff happens. Um, they are in, empathic. They want to help. They want to get out there and, and be part of the solution, but they're not surprised by, by um, this happening because this is how things work. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I, I talk about the book is that if you step back, the, the universe we live in, you know, I, I apologize to Einstein and Newton, and Newton but mm -hmm. it's from our view, it's it's chaotic. Yeah, we're in this little spinning blue globe, right, amidst uh, a billion stars and comets and meteors that eventually crash into us, and a sun that's going to eventually explode. And we're we're just on this planet right now, and we have this amazing ecosystem that keeps keeps us alive. But it's it's pretty unique, and it's temporary. Um, and then uh, because we're biological animals, we're animals uh, first, we are constantly at war with viruses and bacteria um, that we have evolved with for hundreds of thousands of years, right? And it's, it's an evolutionary war. Our immune system is in, in an evolutionary war against um, you know, bacteria and vi viruses that want to attack us. So. Have you um, done any firefighting, like like any like rescues or house calls or anything related to the pandemic in the last six months? No, because I was put immediately because I'm seventy. Mm. I was put immediately on furlough. Gotcha. <laughs> Starting in April, yeah. But gotcha. Okay. My daughter is my daughter is a ICU doc at UNM, so she's seen plenty of it. So mm. yeah, um, and, and you know, I, I really enjoy hearing the anecdotes from doctors who are on the front lines of this because there's so many folks out there who are like downplaying and belittling the presence oh, of this virus in our society. Yeah. And, you yep. know, I think that these real life stories are so important to talk about openly. Absolutely. And I think it's important to kind of look if, if, 
if you have the time to read about the 1918-1919 flu epidemic and the similarities and differences. Um, and we went through, um, of course, HIV AIDS. And that was a huge deal back in the 80s. Um, and and there's, been, there's a history of pandemics. This is not new. Right. Um, and nor are there are when you have a virus where we don't have a vaccine and we and we you know, we don't understand yet uh, the mortality rate, but we know it's really infectious. It's it just it becomes a math problem. Mm-hmm. It just becomes a math problem. I, I think to politicize it is just not is not helpful right now. Mm. Yeah. You know, and something else that really jumps out to me about firefighter Zen is that you as a person you know, you clearly have a curious mind. You clearly appreciate the philosophical life of the mind. You cite philosophy uh, regularly throughout the book. Can you tell me a little bit about, like, you as a writer choosing your anecdotes and quotes that are strewn throughout the book? Because you seem to have had a lot of fun with that part of the writing process. Oh, absolutely. I think, um, and although other writers disagree, it's like when you find someone else, I mean, let's face it, there's nothing new. Right. <laughs> right. There's nothing new, <laughs> yeah. and I think I think it's egotistical to assume that that as a writer you've discovered a brand new way of thinking. Right. I, that just this is not true. Um, so other writers and thinkers have said things much more cogently and precisely than I could ever wish to. Mm-hmm. And so it, if it if if those kinds of quotes accelerate the the narrative, if they kind of move the narrative forward, I'm going to use them. All the time, and I, I have a, and I have since I, I was eighteen. Is I've kept a journal of things that people have written or said, and that's like 130, 140 pages now, and that's wow where I collect most of my stuff. Yeah, the same book. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and your your self awareness of uh, you know being like, well, maybe I maybe other people have said this better is like sort of like a a nice representation of the way that your ego regarding yourself has shifted over the course of your 30 plus career and 30 plus year career in firefighting. Mm-hmm. That's pretty Thank cool. You. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, I think, um, as a firefighter, what I can't, what I constantly learn is to keep your ego out of it. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it's hard sometimes because it's when adrenaline's flowing and people are excited, um, everybody's ego and their defensiveness comes up. And I think learning to say, Hey, I'm just here to help. Right. I'm I, I can I can be the lead medic here or I can step back and do paperwork. It doesn't make any difference to me. I just want help. She seems like she's been such a good influence on the way that you view firefighting in general. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Well, Hirsch, I absolutely love this book. I'm so glad that New World Library um, got in touch to chat about this book. Um, like I said earlier, I've been listening to the audio book as well. I got that on Audible because I have attention issues um, <laughs> with my own reading. And sure. so the fact that there's a, a physical book in my hand and headphones with this well-performed audio book in my ears, it immerses me in the anecdotes that you, that you, that you lay out throughout the book. The stories are so funny <clears throat> and interesting, and you know, I, it's been really helpful for me to have both an audio and a physical copy. So I'm really glad that you and New World Library were able to make that happen for this particular book. It's been wonderful for me. Um, but I would recommend anybody check it out. It's uh, hilarious and insightful and you know sad and like it's human. It's a very human book, and it you know sheds light on things that 
a lot of people, a lifestyle a lot of people will never experience. So this is a way to like live um, somebody else's experiences in a way that is accessible. So I, I, I appreciate this book. I've enjoyed it. I like it a lot. And it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a blast. Can you tell everybody where they can find you if they want to uh, know more about your work? Sure. I have a website called hirschwilson.com. That's H-E-R-S-C-H wilson.com. And then I'm on Facebook at Hirsch Wilson Author. Excellent. Well, Hirsch, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.